I'm Arie Schwartz with my co-host Rachel Galligan, and welcome to the WNBA Insider Show. Each week we cover different topics important to the W, using X's and O's along with key stats who bring honest and critical analysis. This episode we have a special and unique guest, David Barry, also known as that guy who writes those kick-ass articles about the W surrounding, you know, all the misconceptions about the W and those things, and he writes for Forbes. Welcome to the show, David. Uh, glad to be here. So the first thing I really want to ask you is how do you approach these new article ideas? Because as I, as I told you before, before we started recording, your articles are well-written and thought-provoking. I mean, you had one on why is the MJ of the W so underpaid compared to Adonis Jordan in back in the nineties? Uh, the best basketball player taking a lesson from boxing about figuring out who it is and, and many other topics that really just open people's minds to to viewing the W from an equal playing field versus, you know, starting with them way behind. Yeah, I well, l- let me give you a little background on on sort of how Forbes works. Uh, uh, I'm a contributor at Forbes, and Forbes has like a, a fairly large roster of contributors. And so I'm under contract. And the contract calls that I write uh, seven articles per month, which is quite a bit. Uh, and so I spend a lot of my time thinking of ideas. Uh, so my my full time job, the job that I you know that actually pays me, uh, is I'm a professor of economics at Southern Utah University. And so uh, I do I do a fair amount of of research, and I've I've done that throughout my career. Uh, and I, I I write probably three academic articles a year. So I'm I'm always thinking of things to research, things to think about. Uh, and so it's sort of my background as a researcher sort of has led me to to sort of think about what I'm writing about for Forbes. Uh, and so mostly it's just, you sort of think about stuff and you, and you read things and then you start trying to put things together. And the interesting thing about Forbes is I have to I try to write in such a way that somebody who didn't know anything about economics could follow what I was saying. Um, and so, so if you're able to follow what I'm doing, then that's pretty good. That's, that's what I'm going for. Well, and, and I've got a question kind of leading up after that. Um, but way back when, before the, this, this 2018 season started, you wrote a series of articles about something called the Pareto Principle. Now, forgive me, I'm a basketball coach, um, so principles and things like that um, are difficult for me to comprehend at times. But I was reading it, and it's really fascinating to me. And it's a principle that applies to really, um, you can apply it to so many aspects just of life in, in general, but you applied it to the WNBA and kind of who you thought the contenders would be. Um, I guess first and first and foremost, like, can you explain what the Pareto principle is to our listeners? Okay. So the Pareto principle is an idea that was, uh, it's an observation made by an Italian economist named Velfredo Pareto uh, from the early part of the 20th century. So this goes back about a hundred years or so. And what he observed in looking at the distribution of wealth in Italy at the time is that 20% of the population held 80% of the wealth. And so this 80-20 rule sort of became, people started noticing it in other areas. In in my view, it's sort of a, it's sort of a hack idea. I'm not really sure it, it truly applies to a lot of things. It does turn out that when it comes to basketball, and if you look at the NBA and the WNBA, it does it does roughly fit. About 80% of wins in basketball 
are produced by 20% of the players. And the way that works out is I think NBA fans and WNBA fans know this. The top three players on your team are the players who produce most of your wins, and they determine the success of your team. So if you know who the top three players are and you know how good they are, that kind of gives you an idea how good you're going to be. If your top three players are amazing, then you're probably going to be a pretty amazing team. And if your top three players are not amazing, then you're not going to be a very good team. And so people think in basketball, this is, and I don't think coaches are comfortable with this. I think coaches would like to think the whole team produces the wins, but that's not how basketball works. It's really just the top three players that do most of it. And most everyone else, they're helping a little, just not very much. Uh, and if one of your top three go down, uh, you are in a bad, bad, that's not, I mean, the Minnesota Lynx had this problem because Rebecca Brunson is one of their top three. And she went down, she missed a couple of games and they were awful. Uh, you you can't, what Brunson does is rebound and she rebounds really well. And you just can't go to other players and say, you know how Brunson gets like all the rebounds? Could you do that today? Maybe? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's not going to happen. If they could do that, they would do that. They they don't know how to do it. And so so if you, so yeah, when you look at you look at a team, um, you know the Golden State Warriors are a good example. They the, Steph Curry, uh, Durant, and Draymond Green. That's the team. And and they have other players. They're there. They just don't matter very much. Those three guys are what. You know, Minnesota's like that. Maya Moore, Rebecca Brunson. So that, that's the team. That's the team. Sylvia Fowles. That's that's the team. If any of those three are gone or they're not performing well, and the reason why the Minnesota Lynx struggled earlier in the season, why they started off three and six, you can look at the numbers. Maya Moore got off to a horrible start. And if she's not playing well, well, that's just, it ain't going to happen. You can talk to all the other players all you want. That's a key player. And if she doesn't play the way she normally plays, and, and why didn't she play that well initially? Well, maybe it's because she had to go play in another league and she just got back from that league when the NWNBA season started. Perfect. You know, and that's one of the big issues in the WNBA is that they don't pay well enough. And so their players play in another league and that that impacts their performance. If if any NBA player had to go play someplace else and they showed up, you know, a week before the season started, that, that, that wouldn't work out so well. Well, there's no doubt about that. And I, I taking it back to the Pareto principle. I mean, this is uh, <laughs> I, I, me being a basketball coach and the, the majority of my career being in that. Uh, it's fascinating to just hear you speak on it. And it does, it holds a, a validity of truth in so many aspects. I don't know if it would be that harsh from my standpoint, as you said, most, co- most, most coaches would have a difficult time with this, but I do think it's very interesting. Um, for example, uh, when you came, when you came out with this article before the season started, you talked about the Phoenix Mercury. Okay. And you basically said, okay, in 2017, Brittany Griner, Leilani Mitchell and Daniel Robinson produced 60% of their wins. Okay. And so in order for them to be a contender, they were going to need Dewana Bonner to come in and do what she had at least done in 2016. Um, and they talked about Diana Tarazi and her production and just kind of that prediction. If Tarazi and Bonner could come in and do what she was doing, they would be contenders. And it, it's, it's fascinating because they're doing exactly that um, based on kind of, you know, what your predictions were. And so I thought that was kind of neat that uh, you called Bonner out uh, specifically as that kind of that X factor. We we talk about extensively over here at WBA Insider as her being that X, fi- X factor that brings in, uh, you know, just that extra whatever that the Mer- Mercury need. And they're doing that. Um, I think I would speak for everybody who covers the game that uh, the Mercury are one of, probably one of the top 
contenders right now and, and have been playing at a high level. But no, I just thought that was interesting. The Pareto principle, everybody. Um, we're all learning something new today. And isn't it interesting that Bonner came back from pregnancy and she was just basically the same player she you was could before? Almost argue, it's interesting that women could get... No, like, and you could almost argue she's playing better. You know, it's, 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 it's incredible. Yeah. Isn't it odd that women can have babies and it doesn't affect their athletic performance, but men stub their toes and they're out for two weeks? <laughs> Preach, man. I hear you. <laughs> so I, I think this is something that, you know, I, one of the classes I teach is I teach a class on gender economics. So we spend a fair amount of time talking about women in the economy and how women are treated and how women are perceived. Uh, and there's a big gap between how women are perceived and how they actually are. And so men have this idea that they're tough and that they can handle things. And uh, I've lived with women and I only have daughters and I've lived with my wife for 27 years. And women are way tougher than men. Uh, they handle things a lot better than Look men do. You, man. We're speaking uh, truth today. You know, there, there was some, somebody said that Serena Williams is the greatest athlete ever because she won the Australian Open while pregnant. And some guy came back and said, well, Michael Jordan uh, won a title and he had the flu. Seriously? Really? <laughs> We're, we're equating sleep with pregnancy? <laughs> and, and, and like, it, this is going to be the most ridiculous claim ever, but, like, give Michael Jordan, like, a baby Bjorn and a baby and the, and a flu and, like, a billion other things, and then we'll talk. Yeah, it's and the thing is, what's, what's interesting is that men seriously think that the, having the flu is the same thing. And, I, and I, I'm willing to, to agree that from their perspective, it probably is, that men having the flu is, like, the most devastating thing that could ever come to them. <laughs> Because because you're all that soft, you really are. It is. It is. It is the case that yes, yes, yeah. My my wife often points out that if I get sick, I'm on the couch and can't move. It's like yes, I I, I am totally devastated. <laughs> well, something something I wanted to ask you. You had a really interesting article. Um, you know, it was kind of centered around Liz Cambage, but about the pay gap and and it's a really interesting topic right now. We've kind of shied away from it. But I think you would be the right person to discuss this. You were talking about in your article about, um, you know, the wins that they produce and how that would equate to what they should get paid. And in the idea of if the W gave the the 50% revenue like the NBA does, could you speak about that for a little bit? Yeah, this is something that I've been I've been writing about for a while. And I think I the players are, are starting to pay attention to this. Uh, so if you look at the WNBA and you look at, at the revenue that, that we know about uh, and we look at the, and, and you compare it to the NBA. So the NBA, when it comes to revenue and salaries, we know most everything that's all published. Forbes has a list every year of how much revenue the NBA earns. We know every player's salary. Uh, so we, we know what the players are getting paid and we know what revenue is being generated. The WNBA is not nearly as forthcoming. But we do know that there is a broadcasting deal with ESPN that pays them $25 million. And we do know minimum ticket prices. We don't know average. We know minimum. Uh, and so we know minimum ticket price, and that's about $17. And we know what attendance is. And so we can say, okay, minimum revenue, we're talking $52 million. And we know what the average salary is, and we know how many players there are. So we know the players are getting about 11, 12 million out of 52 million. So that's about 20%. And that's an exaggeration. It's less than 20. Players are not getting 20%. They're getting less than 20% because there's a whole lot of other revenue sources that we're not taking into account. They have a Twitter deal. They have local broadcasting deals. They have sponsorships on their jerseys. 
so there's a bunch of other revenue sources that are not in that $52 million figure. But we know that that at most they're getting 20% and the NBA players are getting 50%. And so I went through and I said, okay, let's, let's just re- figure out what would these players get paid if you paid them according to their productivity and they were getting 50% like the NBA does. And the top players would end up getting $700,000, dollars $900,000, which is roughly what they're getting paid to play in Russia and China. And so the WNBA has the money to make competitive salary offers to their stars. They can do this. Uh, but what the WNBA claims is that, well, no, we can't do that because and then the, it, it's just not really clear what the issues are. They, they talk about how, well, their expenses are such, but they don't tell us what the expenses are that they're talking about. So there's no specifics that they give us. It ends up just being that they assert certain things. So if you get, there was an article in the New York Times two years ago that said that six teams in the WNBA are not making a profit. And people are taking this as if God said that. But that's not what the article really said. It said six teams are losing money. It provided zero evidence backing that up. It just it says it in a sentence. Six teams are losing money. And that's based on what? They said so? You have numbers? Where'd you get that from? It doesn't say. And so what happened, I suspect, is the person who wrote the article talked to somebody in the WNBA, and the WNBA said six teams are losing money, and he wrote it down and said, well, that must be true. That That's not necessarily true, just because they the NBA claimed two years ago that, that half the teams are losing money. The NBA, with $7 billion in revenue, claims half their teams can't make money. They have $7 billion in revenue. How can they not make money? You know? You want to, one thing you should, and as an economist who studied people in sports for 25 years, you should understand that people in sports, they're not always telling you the truth when it comes to who's making money or who's not. The WNBA is approaching a labor negotiation uh, with their players. They do not want to say right now that they're making a profit and that they could pay the players a lot more money. They prefer not to say that right now. And so they're going to, they're not making any money. I have a question for you. You, talk, you said the WNBA is not as forthcoming in terms of the NBA. Are you talking about just, just the information provided as to exact numbers, expenses, where things are going? I mean, um, like you said, f- from all your research and things that you've done and, and looked into, is there any, like, do you know where this money's going? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. I can tell you this. Uh, the WNBA claims their expenses are, are so high that they can't pay their players more than, than what they're paying them. Uh, I, I do know that if you look at college, uh, women's basketball, they do self-report their expenses to the department of education. So all the colleges do this and we have access to that data and a college women's program. It seems to me, and I may not be right about this, but it seems to me that their expenses would be pretty similar to a WNBA team in the sense they play a pretty similar schedule length. They have to travel. They have coaches, they have trainers. A lot of these costs seem like they'd be pretty similar, and the average Division One program has a cost of two million dollars. That's their expenses. So if 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 the WNBA expenses are two million, and they pay their players each on average a million dollars, that's what the average payroll for a team is. That's three million dollars, and there's twelve teams. That's thirty six million dollars in costs in a league that has fifty million dollars in revenue. That sounds to me like there's a profit now. It could be that their their expenses are higher because they're spending money on something else. 
and I don't know what that is. Uh, one thing to keep in mind about the WNBA is that a number of them are owned by NBA teams, about six of them. I think it's six. And the WNBA is so small that there probably isn't a lot of expense controls on this league. You know, the Phoenix Suns gave Devin Booker $158 million. That is very much, that's way more than the amount of revenue the entire WNBA is going to make an entire season. So it's very possible that, that their expenses are such that nobody's checking the expenses that much, that they don't really care if a team loses two or three million dollars because this is a, this is being this this is these are organizations that are worth billions. They don't give a damn whether you know a small one you know you have a small little party organization loses two million dollars. If you're worth billions, what do you care? And so it may not be the case that they're they're completely controlling all of their expenses as well as a smaller business that this was the only thing they did would have to do. So that's entirely possible. Uh, we don't, but again, we don't know. We don't know. I, I would, I would argue though that it is at least plausible that the WNBA could be making a small profit, um, and that they're not nearly in as bad a shape as that New York Times article suggested they were in. Uh, and and I would also point out that for a league that's twenty years old, they're doing pretty good. I mean, this uh, leagues that are twenty years old, they look like this. This is what leagues look like when they're young. Uh, they they're. I would expect that the WNBA. Well, in fact, I'm pretty confident in this. In in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, attendance is going to be a lot higher. They're going to have a lot more attention paid to them. There's going to be a lot more revenues. Uh, the league is growing. Uh, that is going to happen as we go forward. They will get more and more attention. People will become more and more familiar with them. What holds the league back when it starts is the fact that nobody knows what they're looking at. You saw the players in college. You might have seen them in the Olympics. But once you put them on a professional team and you don't know what those teams are, it's really hard for somebody who's a casual fan to tune in and pay attention to the game because they don't know what they're looking at. If you're watching the Sparks play the Lynx, is that a good game? Is it a bad game? Are these rivals? If you're a WNBA fan, you know that, right? But if you're not, how do you know? You know, it's not the same as the NBA. If you watch the Lakers and Celtics, even if you're just a casual fan, you have some sense of the history there. I would point out that 1960, when the Lakers played the Celtics, it was the same thing. Nobody knew what a Laker or Celtic was, and they would have the same kind of attendance that you see in the WNBA today. Well, that's that's a really interesting topic. First, I want to point out something that you brought up earlier, which is often when it comes to leagues, it, like the NFL, the NHL, MLB, NBA... Uh, People understand that there is that divide between the league office and the Players Association. And I think too often in the W, it's promoted as this family and people forget kind of what you were pointing out, that it's in the W's best interest to withhold some information so that they can get the best in their in, from their point of view out of the players. Um, something, you know, talking to an, a WNBA player early last year, I don't know if this holds true today, but she said, I just want to play in a league that doesn't have coaches getting paid more than the best player on the team, which I thought was really interesting. But moving forward, something I want to ask you, and you touched on it just now, people often dismiss the whole look at the NBA at age 22 versus the WNBA at age 22 and how the W is kind of ahead of that curve. What do you have to say to people who say that? I don't know, I don't know what there is to dismiss. I mean, there's a progression that leagues follow. You can look at 
NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, NHL, you see a clear progression. I've, I've, I've written articles on looking at attendance. The attendance pattern is, is pretty consistently clear. It rises over time. Uh, leagues start off very small. Uh, they start off with very little coverage, um, very little attendance. Uh, people seem to forget that when Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points, that that game was played in Hershey, Pennsylvania before 4,000 people. There was no radio. There was no television. And the Sporting News, which was the nation's sports uh, paper, basically, at the time, devoted exactly one paragraph to that that story. That's that's the amount of attention it got. They said, Will Chamberlain scored 100 points in an NBA game. That's it. That's the story. Thank you. Nobody cared. Okay, nobody cared about this at all. You know, the early history of the NBA is is a history of a league that is totally a mom and pop operation. When Red Arbach ran the Celtics in the 50s, he was the coach, the general manager, and the marketing director. He was the entire front office. Um, and when he drafted Bill Russell, uh, the story of him getting Bill Russell is hilarious. They literally acquired Bill Russell for the ice capades. That was the trade. Uh, the trade was that somebody told Red Arbach to draft Bill Russell. He had never seen him. There's no television. He's never seen the guy play in his life. He played in San Francisco. Uh, and so he had the sixth pick in the draft. He traded up to the second pick in the draft. Uh, and then they contacted the, the, the team with the first pick. And, and the owner of the Celtics said, I own the Ice Capades. I will send the Ice Capades to your town for two weeks if you simply agree not to draft Bill Russell and you draft anybody else. And the guy said, fantastic. I'd love to have the Ice Capades in my arena. So you got him. He's your guy. That's, that's amazing. Russell. But that's the NBA when it began. Okay, that's what it looked like. It was, it was that kind of a league. And people look at the NBA today and they see this massive $7 billion business and they're like, look at what these men created. Well, it started off like that. And then taxpayers gave the NBA $3 billion in subsidies to build their arenas. The media now gives it 365 days of media attention. And that's all free advertising. The men of the NBA didn't build this by themselves. They got a lot of help. Anytime now, that'd be great. And right now they're looking at the women of the WNBA and saying, I don't know why you can't do this on your own. Well, you didn't do it on your own. Give the, give the WNBA $3 billion and we'll talk. Yes. The, the amount of, think about the amount of money it would take for the WNBA to pay its players 50% of revenue. If the revenue is $50 million and you're paying them eleven, million, you only got to pay them $15 million more. You pay Trevor Ariza $15 million. You're right. You're right. You know, I mean. It, it's, it's, not, it's not out of the ballpark. It's completely reasonable. And, and think about this. You all know that the XFL is being rebooted. A minor league football league, as if we don't have enough football. So they're going to create another football league of players that you've never heard of on teams you've never heard of. And they are going to invest, it was announced, $500 million to make this happen. $500 million. We could build a pretty phenomenal WNBA for $500 million. For $500 million, we could not only have a phenomenal WNBA, we could have a phenomenal National Pro Fast Pitch League, a phenomenal National Women Hockey League, a phenomenal National Women's Soccer League. We could have a lot of phenomenal women's sports leagues for $500 million. Instead, we're going to get another minor league football league that nobody's going to watch and is going to fold in 10 years. You might as well burn it. It's pointless. It's I mean, something that has always really irked me and, and for lack of a better term, just pissed me off is 
if you talk to a basketball fan who doesn't know anything about the WNBA, they're going to know Diana Taurasi. They're going to know Maya Moore, Candace Parker. But the fact that the 12th man, or I guess I don't know how many people are on an NBA roster, the 15th guy on the roster, the guy who gets less than 40 minutes in a season is getting paid handedly more than these legends has just always driven me crazy. Yeah, and and you know, I, I, I will say, even if the WNBA paid 50% of its revenue, it would still be the case that really bad NBA players get paid true. a lot more than legends of the NBA. And that would still be true. But it is the case that paying them $115,000, that's a little ridiculous. Um, and so... And, and the WNBA, you know, does this because they, the players in the, in the league made a deal, an eight-year agreement, where they didn't really link the player salaries to revenue growth, and that was really the issue. They they didn't make a. There is there are there are clauses in the deal that if attendance reaches some ridiculous level, the players will get more money, but it's unlikely that is going to be reached. I think for the the deal to be kicked in, attendance has to get to like ten thousand a game on average, which. 10,000 a game on average for a 20 year league in basketball, that would be ridiculous. Right. Uh, and so they didn't link it to, they didn't link salaries to revenue. Uh, and so the players deal just keeps getting worse year after year after year. And, and they were able to do this because they scared the players. Uh, I, I once had a conversation with people in the union and they said that when they were negotiating a deal, they were told the LA sparks almost folded. They're like the LA sparks didn't almost fold. That's not really true. <laughs> Come, I mean, think about it. If the, the Sparks are linked to the Lakers, the, the, the entire Sparks organization isn't, no, even if it was doing well, it would it would not be generating that much money. It's not generating that many losses either. They're not going to fold the LA Sparks. Again, you're paying your, 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 your end of the bench players probably more than the entire Sparks team is worth. So you're not going to fold the team. That's ridiculous. But they people do things like this. I, I often tell my students this. People have this idea that you can tell when people are lying to you. That is ridiculous. You actually can't. People who are good at lying, are you can't tell when they're lying because they're good at it. <laughs> so the trick in lying is to, look, is to look at the camera very sincerely. That's the trick. So politicians do this all the time. People should be aware that people make up stuff. That's, that's, that's very true. And, and I, I really appreciate you for joining us for this episode. The one thing I do want to ask you, uh, the last thing, I guess, before we close out is, I mean, what, what was there a moment where you said, I'm going to use my platform to bring attention to this? Um, how did it come about that you said, you know, you said you have what, like seven articles a month you got to write? How did it come about that you decided you were going to devote such a large portion of your time to covering this? Well, I decided when I started writing for Forbes last year that half my articles would be on women's sports. So I decided to do 50-50. So I've, I've kept that ratio. So half the articles are on women's sports. Uh, and so I, I, cause I think half the coverage should be on women's sports. I think we should do it that way. Uh, and so I, I follow that. Uh, apparently I'm the only one in the world who does that. So I, I get, I, I get a much bigger fan base than I would otherwise. Um, uh, and I find and my women's articles, the articles I do on women's sports tend to do better than the articles of men's sports. I get a wider readership. Uh, and so my interest in this topic, uh, in women's sports goes back a few years. Uh, it mostly comes from, uh, it is the case I, I, if I had to think about where it all starts, it would be when I started going on Twitter and started listening to what women were saying and started thinking about what they were what they were talking about. That's kind of when it all started, because I started writing about women in sports when I was writing for Vice Sports and, and writing for Time and writing. I, I think I wrote something for The Atlantic once, maybe. 
so when I wrote from other places, I, I, I was starting to talk about women in sports, but it mostly came from, from social media and thinking about what women were saying and paying attention to what they're saying. I think one of the problems that men have is that they don't listen very well uh, and they have trouble shutting up. Um, women notice this a lot, that when women say things online, men feel obliged to comment. Um, men, you, you don't have to comment. You can just read it and then move on. You don't. You can hit like and then go on. You don't have to say anything. There's no rules. Nobody's inviting you to comment. Many times you don't have anything to add. So shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You know, David, thank you so much for all the information today. I mean, and coming on the show and, and just breaking down so many important areas of our game and, um, you know, getting us to really just enlighten us in a lot of different areas from, from the way in which you are capable of looking at it. It's been a tremendous, uh, it's been tremendous just listening to you. Um, and I, I think I speak for a lot of our listeners are going to be excited to, to just kind of hear all the knowledge you were dropping today. And we just appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, really can't can't thank you enough. Guys, this has been the WNBA Insider Show. I'm Aria Schwartz with my co-host Rachel Galligan and our honored guest, Dave Barry. We use X's and O's and cover important topics in the W.